0: As Frank mentioned just a little bit earlier, what we're going to do this morning is what we've been doing every single Sunday for the past 52 Sundays. Last uh, last Easter, we started a, a, a series in the book of Revelation. I think some folks probably thought that since there's 22 chapters in the book, we'd probably be done in 22 weeks. We are now at the, the 52nd message in this, and we've made our way to, to chapter 8 And we're going to do just what we do every single Sunday morning uh, around here. And I I do want to warn you, though, that the message that we're going to hear today is not quite as positive a message as you might want to get when you go to church on, on Easter Sunday. I mean, you can't get better than the fact that we were hopeless sinners, and Jesus Christ knew that loved us in spite of our sin came to this planet and died for us and the proof that he had paid the penalty in full and that he was a satisfaction in the eyes of God he rose from the dead the third day I mean doesn't get much more positive than that but you know what let's let's get honest with one another most of us folks that live here in America in 1998 have heard that message over and over and over again we keep going to easter sunrise services and hearing the death burial and resurrection we keep going to easter services or whatever time of the day they are and and we keep hearing about the death burial and resurrection but somehow it it never seems to to do for some of us what it seemed to do for some others and maybe it's because you've never heard the flip side of Easter. And today, uh, this is not, I'm telling you, this is not a special Easter message. We just happened to come to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to pick up where we are every other, you know, just like we do every other week. Wherever we wherever we end the, the week before, we just pick up where we left off, and this morning we're going to be picking up in Revelation chapter 8 to see the, the flip side of this thing, maybe a, maybe a dimension to this whole Easter thing that some of you have never quite factored in. Now, as we get started this morning, I, I need to take just a, a few minutes to make sure that we all understand the definitions of some very important terms. We've got a lot of folks who have never been in our study of the book of Revelation, and so I'm going to be throwing out some terms today that unless we spend just a second defining those, you, you may find yourself lost With this, if you'll just listen for the next few minutes, you'll follow every single thing that's going on in this whole thing. The first term that I want to acquaint you with is what is called the church age. The reason that this is important for you to understand this is this is the period of time, as far as God is concerned, that we are presently living in. It is called the church age. And in Revelation, the church age is spelled out for us in chapters 2 and 3. He brings us through seven periods... Of church history we are presently living in the seventh and final period in the church age what is called the Laodicean church period we are living in that time the church age is going to end and we believe most assuredly that it's going to end very soon with another word that you need to become acquainted with an event that is called the rapture and according to 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 what the rapture is is that time when Jesus Christ appears in the clouds and he removes off of the face of this planet every believer in Jesus Christ. I'll just tell you this. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and when I talk about that, I'm talking about it in the biblical definition of that term believer in Jesus Christ, which we will define this morning, that event will be the most freaky thing that you've ever experienced. People... If it were to happen this morning, people who are sitting right in this room would absolutely vanish from your presence. That is that event that is called the Rapture, where Jesus Christ removes off of this planet all of those people who have come into a personal relationship with him. The Rapture is going to kick in to this planet another event that you need to make sure that you understand. It is called the Tribulation, or the Tribulation Period. Jesus said about this period of time, which is a seven-year period, picking up from Daniel's prophecy. It is a seven-year period that Jesus himself said there's never been a time like it before it. He said there'll never be a time like it after it. It is the most horrendous time of judgment on this planet that this planet has ever seen. The tribulation period will end with another event that you need to be acquainted with, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The tribulation period culminates with the battle of Armageddon, where all of the nations of the world are coming against Israel. And just when it seems that Israel is about to go under, heaven opens again, and Jesus Christ comes, this time out of the clouds down to the earth, fights the battle of Armageddon, and he sets up a term... Uh, another term that you need to, uh, to be acquainted with that is not on your study sheet. If you just write the word millennium, millennium. Once Jesus Christ comes back to this planet, after the tribulation period, at the second coming of Christ, he will establish on this planet what is called the millennium or the millennial reign of Jesus Christ where for a period of a thousand years, Jesus Christ will rule on this planet and all of the Gentile nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to bow their knee before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, if you understand that, if you can just get those terms down, you'll understand everything that we're going to see this morning in the book of Revelation chapter 8. Now, as we come into Revelation chapter 8, we're about to enter into the tribulation period, that seven-year period of judgment on the earth, We are about to enter that period for the second time in our study of the book of Revelation. We've spent the last two weeks in the first five verses of chapter 8. As John is describing in these verses what was taking place in heaven before he began down this path toward the the second time through the tribulation period. Let's look together Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer with it the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth. And there were voices, and thunderings, and lightnings, and an earthquake. And what is taking place here is God is taking the prayers of the saints. The number one prayer of church-age saints is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the number one prayer that Jesus told us to pray. During the tribulation period, the tribulation saints will be crying out, O Lord, how long before you take vengeance and you set your kingdom up on this planet? And what we're seeing in the first five verses is God getting ready to answer the prayers of the saints. Would you look with me this morning at verse 6? And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Now, he's going to bring us through the tribulation period, through the figure of seven trumpets. Now, if you're just starting with us in our study of the book of Revelation this morning, it may, when you look at verse 6, it may seem like just a little indiscriminate thing when it says that there happened to be seven angels which had seven trumpets. But understand this, there is... Absolutely nothing indiscriminate about that at all. The number seven has a very unique place in the Word of God. In fact, what you find is that when the God of this universe counts, he counts by sevens. He lets you know that from the very beginning of the Bible when he puts seven days in a week. He worked six days and he rested on the seventh. And then when God laid out the law for the Jews, he told them, six days thou shalt do thy work, and in the seventh thou shalt rest. And what you find in the Bible is that the number seven is the number of completion, and it is the number of perfection in the Word of God. The number of completion and the number of perfection. And because it is, when God does something, He does it by sevens. And what you find in the Bible is when you hit the number seven, you start over, just like with the pattern of the days of the week. You hit seven, and then you start counting all over again. And all through the Bible, what God does is He just shows you time after time after time the significance of seven. I mentioned just a minute ago, the the Sabbath was the seventh day. Noah took the animals into the ark by twos, but he took the clean animals, those that would be used for sacrifice, he brought them in, By sevens, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. There were seven years of plenty, and there were seven years of famine in Egypt. In the book of Joshua, the children of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times with with seven priests leading the way who were blowing seven trumpets. The candlestick in the tabernacle had... Seven branches. Solomon was seven years in the building of the temple. And when it was done, the feast lasted for seven days. Job had seven sons. When Job's tribulation started and his friends came to visit, they sat seven days and seven nights in silence. And then they offered seven rams and seven bullocks. Naaman the leper washed in the Jordan River seven times. The blood was to be sprinkled upon the mercy seat seven times. God gave the children of Israel seven feasts. When Jesus was on the cross, he spoke seven times. In the book of Acts, they chose out seven men of good report to be the first deacons. Paul in the New Testament sent seven letters to seven local churches. And when we come to the book of Revelation, now understand that the book of Revelation is that book... That book of the Bible, which is the completion of God's perfect revelation to man. And in this this book, it is God's account of bringing into completion the affairs of man. And what you find in this book is that God makes a perfect end to all sin, to all sorrow, to all unrighteousness, to all unrest. And in this book, where God brings all of this to completion and to a perfect end, what you find is that God just absolutely wears you out with the number of completion and with the number of perfection. What you find in the book of Revelation is that this book is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor by he who stands in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, And from the seven spirits before his throne, where there burned seven lamps of fire, it was sent to the seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches. And when John saw him for the first time, he gives a sevenfold description of him. And then he turns right around and he gives you a sevenfold description of heaven. He then sees a seven-sealed book which is opened by a lamb having seven horns and seven eyes. And as it is, the heavenly host respond with a sevenfold ascription of praise. And as that seventh seal is opened, seven angels sound seven trumpets. And seven angels pour out seven golden vials containing the seven plagues. In chapters 12 and 13, there are seven personages. There is a beast with seven heads, a dragon with seven heads and seven crowns. There are seven mountains, seven kings, seven dooms, seven new things in all. There are 59 specific times where God emphasizes over and over and over, seven, seven, seven. So, when we come to verse 6 of Revelation chapter 8, please understand, this is not just some indiscriminate thing. It's not that there just happened to be seven angels blowing seven trumpets as opposed to six or as opposed to eight. There's something very significant about seven. We really don't have the time to do this, but we really don't have the time not to do this. Because there's something that you need to see about this number seven. It has every single thing, everything to do with every person that is in this room this morning. And I brought you through all of that to let you know that this use of seven in the Bible is something that is not just indiscriminately thrown in there. I mean, you cannot say that, well, that's a strange coincidence there. God's trying to emphasize something to us. And I want to I take you back to the, the very first time that you find this used in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, of course, in Genesis chapter 1, this is the creative week, as it were. And I want you to notice that at the end of verse 5, look at it. It says, In the evening and the morning were the first day. Look at the end of verse 8, middle of verse 8, actually. In the evening and the morning were the second day, verse 13. In the evening and the morning were the third day, verse 19. In the evening and the morning were the fourth day, verse 23. In the evening and the morning were the. Fifth day and then the end of verse 31 and the evening and the morning were the sixth day and now watch what happens in chapter 2 thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day god ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made and god blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which god created and made What you see is God, who is a very patterned God, lays out a pattern for you that evening and morning were the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days. He comes to the seventh day, and there is no evening and morning on that seventh day. God's trying to get your attention. When God breaks a pattern, folks, he's wanting to just scream out, you you better watch this, you better watch this. And what you find is he took that seventh day and he sanctified it. The word sanctified means set apart. God took that seventh day and he set it apart to himself. This day is my day. This is the Lord's day. Now, take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Second Peter, if you would. In the New Testament... We come to the book of 2 Peter, and God just drops an absolute bomb on us. 2 Peter chapter 3. And look at verse 8. He says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Now, if I, if I could, he's, he's saying, if, if I could just get you to see one thing. I, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. Please. Don't miss this. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, if we'll take that verse, and we'll cruise back in our minds to the book of Genesis, and watch what unfolds there, what you would have is, if a thousand years is equal to a day what you would have is that there would be six thousand years and then we would have the day of the Lord you know what the day of the Lord is called in the Bible the day of the Lord is called the millennium it is a thousand year day on this planet it's that event that we talked about when Jesus comes at his second coming He comes to set up his millennial reign where he rules and reigns on this planet for a period of a thousand years. And Peter says, now listen, don't miss that. Don't miss that. It's as if he's just saying, would you go plug that back into Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and just see what's there, that there will be 6,000 years of human history and then the day of the Lord if our calendars are correct, do you realize, folks, that right now we are living in the 5,998th year? The year 2000 will mark, if again, if the calendars are right, will mark that 6,000th year. And what the Bible teaches us to be looking for is a period of 1,000 years where Jesus Christ will rule and reign on this planet, and, and I know the argument, okay, I, I, I didn't just crawl out from the rock yesterday, I know that everybody is saying, oh yeah, well, Christians have been saying that Jesus is coming back for the last 2,000 years, and he hasn't, and the reason he hasn't is because he ain't, and Christianity is just a bunch of hogwash, it's for weak-minded people who, who need some kind of crutch to get them through, through life, and yet you gotta love it, because even that, do you realize, even that statement is a part of of the prophecies concerning the last days you're right here in second peter chapter three and look look back with me at verse three peter says knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation ah yeah they keep saying that but you know what nothing ever changes and then they throw up to us, you know, every generation thought that they were going to be the last one, and every generation has talked about that Jesus Christ was going to come back in their lifetime, but did you know something? Listen, that isn't necessarily true. I'm not the first one to stumble onto this little pattern that we see here in Second Peter three: eight, connecting that with Genesis chapter one and, and chapter two. Let me just bring you through. Some quotes from people who have lived at a time not in 1998 look on your sheet Rabbi Elias who lived check this out folks he lived 200 years before Christ said the world endures 6,000 years 2,000 before the law 2,000 under the law and 2,000 under Messiah that was 200 years before the time of Christ Barnabas, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, lived in approximately 70 A.D. and wrote in the epistle of Barnabas, he said this, And God made in six days the work of his hands, and he finished them on the seventh day, and he rested on the seventh day and sanctified it. Consider, my children, what that signifies. He finished them in six days. The meaning of it is this, that in 6,000 years... The Lord God will bring all things to an end, for with him one day is a thousand years, as himself testifies, saying, Behold, this day shall be as a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is, in six thousand years, shall all things be accomplished. And what is it that he saith, and rested on the seventh day? He meaneth this, that when his son shall come and abolish the season of the wicked one, which of course is the Antichrist, and judge the ungodly, and shall change the sun and the moon and the stars, then he shall gloriously rest in the seventh day. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers who lived in approximately 150 A.D., wrote in his book Against Heresies, talking about the account in Genesis, this is an account of the things formerly created, as also it is a prophecy of what is to come. For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created things were completed. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the 6,000 years. We don't have the time this morning to to continue on. They're listed there on your your study sheet. Uh, Lactantius in 300 A.D. said the same thing. In, In the commentary on the Talmud, Rabbi Katina said the very same thing. Bishop Latimer wrote in 15 52. listen to what he wrote. The world was ordained to endure, as all men affirm, 6,000 years. Now, of that number, there be passed 5,552 years. That was in 1552. So that there is no more left but 448 years. And, of course, that would bring you up to the year 2000 A.D. Now, now listen very carefully, okay? By going through all of that this morning, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that it is the, the return of Christ, the, the rapture is going to take place exactly on the year 2000. Again, because there is some discrepancy in, in our calendar. I will say this. Our calendar is, is pretty close. And God, of course, is God, and God can do whatever He wants, to do, it, what it says right here in Second Peter 3 and verse 9, is that the only reason that he has not already come is because he is long-suffering, and I, and I don't know, maybe God in his grace and mercy is going to get an extra dose of long and it and it may continue just a little bit further, but I'll just tell you this, if it's very far past the year 2000, it isn't going to cause me to lose my faith. It isn't going to cause me to shake my faith. But I will tell you this, I'll be one surprise camper. Because God, as I told you, he's a patterned God. He's a structured God. He's an ordered God. And all the way through that book, man, he just keeps laying it down. He just keeps laying it down. The patterns, the patterns, the patterns. And again, I'm not going to lose my faith. You can, don't don't come play the tape back to me. and all, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be surprised if it's too much beyond that. But now go to Revelation again. Verse 6 says, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. You see, when we ended our, our, our journey through the tribulation period for the first time, back in chapter 7, in verses 9 through 12, all of heaven was, was rejoicing. And it says that they were rejoicing with a loud voice. And they, they offer this, this praise to the Lamb. And, and all of heaven is just rocking with praise. But in chapter 8 and verse 1, when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, again, which marks the beginning of the second time through the tribulation period in the, in the book of Revelation, When he opens that seventh seal, all of heaven gasps in just breathless silence. And all of heaven is just deathly quiet for a period of of 30 minutes in anticipation of what is about to unfold on the earth. And I'm telling you folks, if if this morning, if this morning somehow we we could see... And we could really understand deep down in our souls the events that we're about to see taking place here in Revelation chapter 8 when he blows these seven trumpets. And if we could really, really, we, we know this here, but if we could really understand this morning that the events that we are going to see taking place on this planet are going to be events that are going to be affecting people that we see every single day on this planet. The people that we're talking about that will be affected, they are not fictitious people. They are not people, that, you know, 2,000 years down the road, we're talking about our very own neighbors. We're talking about our co-workers. We're talking about our family members and our, and our friends. Almost every single person that we see on a daily basis, every person who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, those are the people that we're talking about that are going to be affected during the tribulation period. And I'm telling you, if we could just come to the point to where we would not just know it here, but we would somehow have it get down into our souls and into our spirits, you know what? We would all sit here this morning, just like John said heaven did, in absolute, bone-chilling, deafening silence. I mean, it is absolutely horrendous what is going to be taking place on people that we know and love. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to know something. God's going to give you, in the next 30 minutes, the opportunity to hear firsthand, right from His book, about what is inevitably and without fail going to take place on this planet in the near future. And if you're here this morning and don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the events that we're going to be talking about this morning are events that are going to affect you. The the things that we're going to read about and we're going to talk about this morning are things that unless something happens in your life, are things that you personally will experience. You'll experience them firsthand. And my prayer for you this morning is that in the next 30 minutes that you would become, just like heaven was here, that you'd become silent before God and before His Word without the internal noise of resistance, without all the internal noise of argumentation, but just listening in silence to what it is that the God of this universe is wanting to say to you this morning. You say, well, you know what, I don't know for sure if I can do that, because I'm really not totally sure I believe all this stuff. Well, let me just say this to you. What you're holding in your hand this morning is a 4,000-year-old book of 10,360 specific prophecies And in the last 4,000 years, folks, God has a track record of being right 100% of the time. He's never, ever, ever missed. I'm I'm telling you, folks, now now listen, think with me. If you took those kind of odds with you to Vegas, you know what? You'd be a multimillionaire overnight. I mean, advertise a, a psychic with with that kind of track record with his predictions and buddy, this week that guy would go from Oprah to Jerry Springer to Larry King to Geraldo he would pack out every coliseum on this, this planet because people would just be clamoring to, to hear his prediction for their life but all of a sudden put those predictions in a book and attach the name of the holy creator of the universe to it and all of a sudden man's not real sure he can buy all this stuff is that not the most horrendous line of reasoning that you can imagine and I just got to tell you I believe that God has brought I believe he's brought all of us here this morning but I believe that some of you are here because God has set a divine appointment with you he wanted you to be here today to hear the other side of Easter and without you even realizing it somehow you got here today and to this point you've kept the appointment and now would you do what heaven did as they Watch this unfold. And would you just, in silence, let God speak to your soul? Now John brings us now through the sounding of the, the seven trumpets. The first four are going to be directed against the objects of nature. They'll be directed against the objects of nature. The vegetation, the sea, the rivers and the earth's luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars. All of the stuff, interestingly enough, that man has found to worship in the last 6,000 years. You say, well, I'll tell you what, I live in America. Americans don't worship that stuff. No, you see, we're far too refined to be idolatrous like that, right? But it is interesting, is it not, that all of the things that are actually affected in the sounding of those first four trumpets in verses 7 through 13 are all of the things that the save the earth people have been clamoring to protect in the last three decades. The trees, the grass, the creatures in the ocean, the whales, the seals, And then the ozone, I mean, folks, listen, it's all right there in the first four trumpets, and God is just blasting all of it. That's why I've entitled the message today, God's Answer to Earth Day. God's going to show you the importance of all of that stuff in light of Him. Then in the last three trumpets, it's not God coming against the objects of nature. But it's God coming against man himself. Listen, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 says that in the latter times, that is the very time that we're presently living in, it says that men will depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And as the last three trumpets sounds, it's as if God is saying, I'm going to give you just exactly what... What you want and you know what he does in chapter nine he opens up the bottomless pit and demon spirits like huge locusts come billowing out of of the bottomless pit like smoke and and with smoke and it says that they have the power to sting and to bite men and the sting lasts for a solid five months so intense that men will beg to die, and will not be able to. It's just an incredible thing, and we'll see that next week in chapter 9. But now, let's begin to walk through the sounding of the first four trumpets this morning. Verse 7 says, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass at first of the seven angels steps into position He raises his trumpet the blast goes forth and immediately hail and fire and blood begins to fall out of the sky onto the very earth that in the next few minutes we're gonna walk right out of the doors of this church and be looking at the very earth that these things are going to be dropping on. And the result is, one-third of the trees on this planet are burnt up, and all of the green grass is just totally fried. And you know what? It's just absolutely wild what man does when he comes to a passage like this. You know what he does? He asks, now, now what does all this this mean here in Revelation chapter 8? What does all this symbolize, folks? Would you listen? It doesn't symbolize anything. It means exactly what it says. John is writing about what he actually saw. This is not a dream that needs to be interpreted. This is not a vision that somebody needs to come along. Now, this means this and that neither. Hail is going to literally come pouring out of the sky. Literal chunks of of ice that are just like in your fridge, along with fire, literal burning fire coming out of heaven to the earth, and blood, literal blood, hemoglobin. And it's going to have disastrous results on the vegetation on this planet. And you know what's crazy? Seventy-five years ago, preachers were preaching that this kind of thing is going to soon be taking place on the earth, and scientists were laughing at them. Seventy-five years later, the scientists are saying, you know, this is soon going to be taking place on the earth, and the preachers are laughing at them. I'm just telling you, folks, it's some dark days when scientists know more about the future than preachers know. But that's the case. Do you realize, folks, that there are already enough nuclear-tipped missiles on station and ready for launching to do every single thing predicted in verse 7 in less than 30 minutes? I mean, by the time, if it were to happen right now, the nuclear war were to break out on this planet, do you realize that before we walk out of this room this morning, Everything that we just read about would take place on this planet. And listen, by that I'm not, I'm not suggesting that all of this is the result of some you know, nuclear war. Because listen, what we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 8 and, and verse 7, please understand, this is not the result of man's doing. This is the result of God's doing. What this is is the wrath of God being poured out on this planet. Now, listen, when you look at the, the ar- artillery that man now has, it's a freaky thing, no doubt. But let me tell you, compared to God's artillery, it ain't jacked. It, it, it's, like the, it's like the sign that I saw on a, a fence one time. It, it said, forget the dog, beware of owner. And listen, during the tribulation period, forget man. Beware of God. Someone says, well, I'll just tell you, pal, I don't believe in that kind of God. Listen, I I promise you, the last thing I want to do on Easter Sunday is is tick you off. But I, I want to make sure that we all understand something. It does not matter what you and I believe. Well, you know, I always thought it it doesn't matter what we think. Well, I was always taught it doesn't matter what some preacher, including this one, taught or what he said. What matters is what God said. And God said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, Let God be true and every man a liar. You you better grab a hold of God's opinion. You better bank on that because it's the only thing that is truth. And really, for anybody who knows anything about the Bible, what takes place during this, this first trumpet judgment is, is no stretch because not only was it prophesied in Joel chapter 2 and verse 30 when God said, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of, of smoke. But listen, all of this stuff that we're talking about here in verse 7, all of it has actually happened on this earth before. The same kind of judgment occurred in Exodus chapter 9 verses 22 through 24 during the seventh of the ten plagues of Egypt. In fact, what you find is that the ten plagues that came upon Egypt when Moses was was dealing with Pharaoh to let the people of God go, what you find is that all of that was really just a shadow of what is going to be taking place on this earth during the tribulation period. As most of you folks know, Egypt in the Bible is a type or a picture of the world. And during the ten plagues, what was happening is God was meeting out tribulation upon Egypt as a judgment for their sin and disobedience. And see, in Revelation chapter 8, it's the same exact thing. What is happening is God is meeting out his judgment on a worldwide scale during this period, called the tribulation period, coming against the sin of man and his disobedience. And in Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 to 24 it says, "And the Lord said unto Moses, "Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt." And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran along upon the ground and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail very grievous such as there was not like in it uh, like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation in other words God's wanting to make sure that we understood that what was taking place there in Egypt through that plague was not the result of man's doing. It wasn't the result of a natural disaster. It came from the very hand of God through the rod of Moses in the same way that all of this is going to come upon the world again, from the hand of God through the sounding of that first trumpet. And with the massive loss of vegetation on this planet, not only will it bring an incredible famine... But when you take out that type of vegetation and you've got these trees and the green grass and the wheat and all of these things that that have just totally shriveled up and died, what is going to take place is incredible soil erosion, floods, mudslides, the air pollution will be just absolutely unbelievable because the fire... Will, uh, will just engulf the, the atmosphere, the, the smoke and all of that, and the vegetation that's left won't be enough to adequately absorb the, the, the hydrocarbons that will be coming from the cars and the buses and, and what's left of, of industry. Folks, when that first trumpet sounds, all of ecology is just going to be turned inside out and upside down. Understand this. This is just the beginning I mean, this is just the first trumpet. There's six more to go. Look at the second one in verse 8. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. The second angel takes his trumpet it sounds throughout heaven, and as it does, God sends down the judgment of an incredible burning object that has disastrous effects upon the sea. Now, it's important that we notice the words of Scripture. Now remember, that John is, is a first century man. He is writing with first century vocabulary about things that he saw. And when God inspires him to write these things, he's not using 20th century terminology, but he's using terminology that all men in the last 20 centuries could understand. So look at what he says again. He says as it were a great mountain burning with fire. It wasn't a great mountain that John saw. John says, "But that's that's what it looked like. It was as it were" A great mountain. It it, it looked like a huge burning mountain that was coming out of the sky and it was cast into the sea. And it's most likely a a huge asteroid or, or meteorite. And the sea that he's referring to here is no doubt the Mediterranean Sea. Understand that at this period of time... Israel will be back in the homeland. The Antichrist will have enthroned himself in Jerusalem. So the center of all of these judgments is going to be there. And then from there, they will reach out to the four corners of the earth. But John says, when this huge burning mass fell into the sea, it resulted in three things. First of all, the third part of the sea became blood. Now, now guess what that means? The third part of the sea became blood. Not symbolic blood. Not, it became red like blood. You see, when you really shake it down, the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. When he's talking about an illustration, he tells you, as it were, If it's a symbol, he's going to tell you, and then he's going to define the symbol for you. When he's just talking straight up, he's going to tell you, just straight up. And what he tells us here is a third of the water became literal blood. And it corresponds with the first Egyptian plague, when God turned the waters of the Nile into literal blood. Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 and 21 says that all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood, and the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And folks, the same thing is going to happen to a third of the Mediterranean in the tribulation. And then secondly, this burning mass, it slams into the sea, and the second thing that happens is the third part of the creatures in the sea... Are going to die you know some of them no doubt are going to die because of the the, the great impact of this burning mass others will die because of the contamination of the blood and don't you know that's going to be a lovely smell all this this dead carnage of fish and seals and whales and that blood and the sun beginning to bake oh my goodness then thirdly when the meteorite or this asteroid is cast into the sea, the third part of the ships will be destroyed. Now that may not sound like a lot—a third of the ships in the Mediterranean—but please don't don't miss the fact that Revelation chapter 18 tells us that during the tribulation period, the the Babylonian or Babylon is going to be rebuilt, and it will be during that period of time the commercial center of the entire world, and so we're talking about in that part of the world, in the Mediterranean, there will be hundreds and hundreds of ships there, folks, and obviously the the impact of this mountain-like object being cast into the sea, if it doesn't cause a tidal wave that will destroy these things, the, the wake of it is so significant that at least a third of the ships are capsized, and you can, if you'll just let your mind go for just a minute, what you'll begin to see is that that already, just through these first two trumpets, the effects of this thing are absolutely unbelievable. I mean, when, when you figure the destruction of at least a third of all green vegetation on this planet with the loss of a third of the marine life in the Mediterranean, we're talking about a massive reduction in the world's food supply. And, and then when you figure the loss of the the, the great majority of the ships used to distribute that food. Folks, we're, we're talking about a famine of enormous consequence. The world will just be in absolute, just through these first two trumpets, the world will be in total upheaval. And then the third angel picks up his trumpet to sound, and things get even more horrific as God blasts now even the fresh water supply look at verse 10 verse 10 says and the third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters and the name of the star is called wormwood the third part of the waters became wormwood and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter When this third trumpet sounds, another incredible meteorite or asteroid or or comet, again remember that John is writing in first century terminology and so that men in all ages could understand it, he calls it a star, obviously a star is much larger than than our planet it's a piece of a star, a meteorite, whatever you want to call it, but it comes into this atmosphere, and John says, when it came in, man, it burned like a lamp. I mean, just put yourself there. See what John was seeing. People living on this planet right now are the people that will see this stuff, folks. He says it came in, and it burned like a lamp, and as it strikes the earth, one-third of the earth's water supply, becomes a deadly poison. It is evidently that the gases and the vapors and the chemicals coming off of this incredible thing are absorbed into the third of the the rivers and the the springs and, and the wells. And what you have here is a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 15, where God said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. Wormwood, according to Deuteronomy 29, verses 17 and 18, is the fruit of God's judgment for the sin of idolatry. And I want you to know something. God has watched the idolatry on this planet for 6,000 years. What you're seeing here is his wrath, being poured out because of the sin of idolatry. It comes in the form of wormwood. And what wormwood actually was, was an extremely bitter herb. And as you trace its usage through the Bible, the bitterness of wormwood always stands for the bitterness of God's judgment upon the disobedient. Listen, when God gets ticked, it's a very, very bitter experience for anybody who is anywhere around. And that's exactly what Wormwood is here. It's, it, but now, listen, it's to the nth degree. And John says at the end of verse 11 that many, many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And in this case, poison. Now, we don't have a long time to spend on this, but if you would, let me show you something real interesting back in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Now, this is a passage that if you have a newer version, may not be there. You may have a Bible where it's bracketed or footnoted or something like that. Basically, this is a passage that's come into question for, you know, about the last 200 years or or so. And the reason that it's come into question, folks, is not because it doesn't belong in the Bible. It's just because man doesn't know what to do with it. And when man can't figure it out, he figures it out that, well, maybe it's not supposed to be there. So he starts screwing with the Bible. Don't ever screw with the Bible. Just let it be the Bible. It, it, It says what it means, and it means what it says, and... You come to Matthew or Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Now this is the passage that comes into question. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And buddy, Baptist are big on that one. Oh, we like that one. That belongs there. But then they bail out. Verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You see, this is where the Church of Christ, they're real big on this now. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Okay, then Church of Christ bail out. So we the Baptists go, Church of Christ go, then the charismatics come in, Pentecostals. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. And then the Charismatics and the Pentecostals bail out. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. What about this, what about this passage? You, you, folks, listen. You know what? One of the most beautiful passages in all the Word of God right there. You, you, know, what, you know what's going on here? Verses 17 and 18 Apply to the tribulation period when the same apostolic signs and miracles and, and wonders that you find in the early part of the book of Acts will pick up once again when God deals with the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. You, you know what? You, you'll simplify the, the, the whole argument about the whole signs and wonders and miracles of healing stuff. When you recognize that all of those things biblically are given to Israel and none of those things are ever in effect unless God is dealing with Israel. You you see, what what it comes down to is that just about every single false teaching or heresy that you can think about that we're dealing with right now in the church age, you know what it is? It is a tribulation truth. It's a tribulation truth. Every false teaching about healing, about losing your salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptismal regeneration, speaking in tongues, observing the Sabbath day. I mean, listen, just go through the list of every heresy that you can think about and almost every single time, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be a tribulation truth. But now listen. When you try to apply a tribulation truth in the church age, it is a false doctrine. It is an heretical teaching. But now, now understand this. This is going to be applied during the tribulation period. And during the tribulation... When the waters become wormwood and men everywhere are dying on this planet because, because of it, check it out in verse 18. Believers in Jesus Christ will drink it and it won't hurt them. So That's what Mark chapter 16 is talking about. But during that period of time in the tribulation period, the waters will become poison. And evidently, they're going to remain that way throughout the remainder of the tribulation period. And that's why in Ezekiel chapter 47, where it's talking about the millennium, that thousand-year period of, of time where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this planet, it says in Ezekiel 47, verses 7 through 9, listen to it, that the waters shall be healed. You know why they're going to be healed? Because they became wormwood. In the tribulation period, and it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth with us over the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live, whither the ri- river cometh. During the millennium, what Ezekiel 47, 7 through 9 says, is that God is going to undo the judgment of that third trumpet, the, wor- the, the waters will be healed, no longer being wormwood. Now let's look at one final one this morning. The fourth trumpet, verse 12. Revelation chapter 8, verse 12. It says, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars... So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not, for a third part of it, and the night likewise. The the fourth judgment, the fourth trumpet as it sounds, has to do with the earth's luminaries, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And you know, it's interesting, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, it says that it was on the fourth day of creation that God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven, and he goes on to explain those lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then it is at the blast of the fourth trumpet that one-third of the light that they produce is diminished. And what verse 12 seems to imply is that not only is the actual light they produce diminished by a third, but the 24-hour cycle itself is diminished by a third, so that if you divide the 24 hours of a day into thirds, you come up with eight, and it says that a third of it is, is going to be smitten, so that it will become a 16-hour cycle, so that basically what is going to be taking place during this period of time is that the sun will will shine basically for an eight-hour period at two-thirds strength and then the night falls for another eight-hour period being one-third darker than normal And, and I don't know maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew chapter 24 verse 21 that except the days of the great tribulation should be shortened there should no flesh be saved. But all kinds of things are going to be taking place in the sun and the moon and the stars. And I I can tell you this, one thing is for sure. By this point in the tribulation period, folks, absolute fear and terror and chaos is going to grip the earth as these first four judgments have fallen upon the earth. And, And I'm sure at this point, as John is watching all of this stuff happen, I'm sure that John was just absolutely, totally freaked out as he's watching all of these things coming to pass. But watch what happens in verse 13. John says, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa! 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 The word is, is is an exclamation of extreme grief or or anguish. Something terrible is about to happen. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Let me paraphrase that for you. You, you know what he's saying here. This angel is saying, "Hey." If you thought that those first four judgments were something, you haven't seen Jack Diddley yet, because what is getting ready to take place in these next three trumpets makes all of that look like a picnic. These next three, these next three trumpets, they're the the woe judgments. So the angel says, woe, woe, woe. Sam Jones, the, the old country preacher used to say, when God says woe, you better stop. And you better listen. And I just wonder today, if you won't do that, if you won't just stop, don't don't pack up on me, just listen. I, I just wonder, As you've seen all of this that is going to take place in the very near future on this planet. I just wonder if God today hasn't gotten your attention. Gotten you to the point to where you're, you're silent long enough to hear what he's saying. What he wants to say to your soul. Would you listen folks? God is graciously allowed us today not to be hearing the voice of these trumpets of woe and judgment. Listen. The voice for today is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who is lovingly, and graciously calling to sinners to come to Him in repentance of their sin as their only way to be able to find the forgiveness of God. That's the voice that we hear today. Our problem is, we don't have time to listen to it. And that's why, as we were coming toward Easter Sunday, this passage was right there, and I thought to myself, you know what, why are we going to do this same thing over and over and over and over again so we can do our little Easter gig, go back into life and do our normal thing? I, I think what God is wanting to do is He's wanting to let you see the backdrop of what's getting ready to take on this planet so that when somebody stands before you and says but you don't have to go through that because Jesus Christ died to take your sin that sin was buried he rose again the third day and if you'll simply come to him you can find the forgiveness of sin and when the trumpet sounds at the rapture you'll be removed so that none of this stuff affects you but you see you don't appreciate the good news of that story until you understand that there is most assuredly some very, very bad news that is going to affect every single person on this planet in the very near future. Again, I realize today Nobody's going to be going out of here slapping the pastor on the back saying, Hallelujah, man, that was a great message. And you know what? I'm not really interested in a slap on the back. What I'm really interested in is that people that walked into this room this morning not knowing Jesus Christ understand that we are living in the very last of the last days and the things that we're talking about are very urgent. I can't force you into receiving Jesus Christ, that's not the purpose in the message. The purpose of the message is to warn you. These things are going to be taking place, and yet the voice of God is speaking today, lovingly and graciously, calling you to himself to find the forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. And as our service is going to be concluded here in just another second or two, our pastors are going to be up on, on either side of the front of this worship center. They're going to be there for you. And if God has spoken to your heart today and you want to know, what does the Bible say about how do I actually receive this gift that God provided for me through the Lord Jesus Christ? These men are there to help you. We want to answer your questions. Nobody's going to make you make any decision They're simply there as a place for you to go as we invite you today to receive the Lord Jesus Christ or to find out more about it so that you can make a a decision that you know in your heart that God wants you to make. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I, I, I pray this morning for every person that is in this room today. I know that there are no doubt many did not come this morning anticipating that we would be in the book of Revelation today many that were, were, were looking as you said would be characteristic of this last day for somebody to come and tell them what they want to hear to scratch them where they itch and Lord we've sought to be obedient to you today in the preaching of your word you said it was by the foolishness of preaching that you have chosen to bring people to yourself and so Lord now we're asking you to do what only what only you can I realize that the purpose of my involvement today was not to convict people of sin I can't do that, only your Holy Spirit can and so now Would you please convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment in the lives of people in this room today that don't know you? I pray you'd give them the courage to respond to the invitation to come to you and find forgiveness today. And oh Lord, I do pray for those of us here that do know you and that are a part of this church. I pray that as we watch these final days unfold before our very eyes, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with an urgency, with a love, compassion for the lost people on this planet. Open. Doors of opportunity for us to be able to share the gospel with them before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.